welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan, and I'm here with my co-host, Gavia. Hello. This week, we will be talking about the 1939 Frank Capra film, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, which we thought would be interesting to discuss in light of the current political climate. This movie is most famous for a very long filibuster scene at the end, which gets referenced every time there is a filibuster in the Senate, to the point where there was literally yesterday an article on Vox about this film because of the, uh, it's not a repeal of the filibuster, or the repeal of the rule to filibuster Supreme Court justices in the Senate, but they, they killed the rule, essentially, as people listening to this will know. So this is a film that, even if most people today have not seen it or don't really know much what it's about, the name of the movie is very prevalent in the vernacular. And I watched it recently because I've been going through a lot of old movies in my vacation instead of doing the work I should be doing. And I found it totally fascinating because it is this major classic that I've been meaning to watch for a long time, but it is incredibly dated in many, many ways. (laughs) And also in certain ways still very relevant to what America is. So would you like to give a sort of brief plot summary of yeah. what is happening in this film? So first of all, I'll tell you what I thought it was about beforehand. Uh, from the way <laughs> oh. from, from the way people talk about it, which is actually not that different. I thought it was about a sort of um Atticus Finch type character <laughs> who goes to Washington to like specifically filibuster some issue that he wants to fight. So he's like someone who isn't an expected political figure but he protests something. But while I was watching it, I was like, oh, right, this makes more sense because the actual topic he's filibustering is completely apolitical. So no matter where you are in the political spectrum, you're like, well, he's a stand-up young man, (laughs) which is how you make this movie last forever because anyone can have any opinion. You're like, well, he's exactly doing what I want him to do. (laughs) Yeah, so what happens is that this guy, Jefferson Smith, is... Jimmy uh, Stewart, just so you have a picture in your mind. Jimmy yes. Stewart is uh, basically like boys club leader from, I don't think they specify the state, do they? I was thinking Ohio the entire time, but I don't think they specify Yeah, it was based on a is. short story where they literally just didn't, it was like published with different states as the yeah. title. It's meant to be, you know, a state with a lot of countryside and he's it this sort of all shucks. Like he, he, yeah, he's like yeah. someone who spends a lot of time in the outdoors and he's a boy scout leader, although they can't actually use the copyrighted term of the boy scout so it's like he's the boy ranger hero and all, yes. the little, all the little boys love him and he runs a local like newsletter that's published by the boy rangers and a senator dies like one of the two senators from his state and the other senator claude rains needs to recruit someone quickly for like the last two months of his term and they need someone who'll just be a stooge so they try to choose someone who's a stooge, but all the kind of lower level political people are like, this is really corrupt. So they select this character, Jefferson Smith, instead, because he's really popular and he doesn't know anything about politics. They think he'll be really naive and easy to manipulate. But unfortunately, he is a very stand-up, moral and patriotic young man. So when he goes to Washington, he's really like, he's spellbound by the wonders of all of the monuments. There's a long montage of him sort of staring in awe at like the Lincoln Memorial and stuff like that. But, so Claude Rains, the senator, who's amazing, by the way, he's actually like, probably I prefer him to to the Jimmy Stewart character in this movie. He basically gives Jefferson Smith some busy work. He's like, why don't you 
build this scout camp, which is like the one thing he's interested in doing because he doesn't know anything about politics. And he's doing this because he just wants to distract Jefferson Smith. And meanwhile, in the background, Claude Rains and some other political figures from the state are, they're all crooked and they're trying to get money from um, this dam that they're planning to build. So they're trying to push through a bill to get this dam built. But it turns out that Jefferson Smith has decided to put his scout camp on the same land. So they're now at odds with each other. And because Smith knows nothing about politics, he's just like naively falling into a trap where he very quickly um, gets falsely accused of being corrupt himself and then has to defend himself in front of the Senate. So that's how you end up with the filibuster. And it sort of ends with him being a whistleblower for all this corruption. And the film literally just ends like right after he finishes the speech. So it's like, yes, everyone now believes that the bad guys are corrupt and the film's over. Applause. (laughs) Um, yeah, and I've also not mentioned the best character in the movie, which is Smith's secretary, played by Jean Arthur, who Morgan and I were sort of emailing about last night, like, she's definitely the best. Because she basically, like, teaches him how to do all of the stuff he needs to do to do his job. He's al- She's also a lot more interesting as a character, because he's just, like, so parodically wholesome. <laughs> Whereas she's, like, a normal person, and she's also sort of got that, like, witty, screwball, cynical, noir lady thing going on. And she's pals with one of the journalists who is like the only journalist who isn't portrayed as a complete nightmare. Yes. Uh, Jean Arthur is wonderful. I've seen her in a lot of things recently and she is an excellent screen presence. She kind of plays the same character and everything, but it's a great character. So it's fine. And she really does do everything in this film. Even during the filibuster, she's like giving him directions from the gallery, sort of like pointing at stuff and telling him to read parts of a book. And it's like, she is the hero of this movie. It could not be more obvious. (laughs) Right. But because of the past, uh, it has to be Jimmy Stewart. Not that we have fixed sexism, but it's very clearly, you know, he is the, the sterling white man who must ride in and save the day which is great it really was wild to see how certain things have changed and certain things haven't watching this so we'll talk about the ways that it still is kind of relevant to today later but even from the beginning when he arrives in Washington and is all gee whiz about the situation i mean he literally says gee whiz many times in this film um there's this long montage that you mentioned where he sort of slips away from his minders which makes them all freak out because they think he's literally a child and goes on this tour of the monuments and goes to see the constitution and the declaration of independence i think and all of these kinds of things and they literally play the star-spangled banner over this montage and he gazes up into the faces of Jefferson and Lincoln. Lincoln is really the big one in this yeah. movie. But honestly, a, not that far from a lot of stuff you see in the West Wing. Like <laughs> you will have like President Bartlett will be like, okay, it's time for a three to five minute speech about the greatness of our forefathers. And then there'll yeah. be like a montage of the flag. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, it was interesting to me about this was obviously the the most jarring thing is that Jefferson, at least among sort of liberal people, has his reputation has suffered a lot in the last 70 years. We now know things about Jefferson that they just didn't know in the 1930s. Like the the Sally Hemings thing was not public 
I mean, then people shouldn't know that that was a thing. And so he was still seen as this, like, oh my god, he's one of the, the great presidents and on and on and on. Which is just sort of weird and fascinating to and see And now it's like, in, oh, it's the like, guy who Jeff Sessions is named after. <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, he's Jefferson Smith is named after Jefferson in mm, this movie, mm, right? Whereas mm. that that's not something that would be done anymore in a mainstream movie like this, I don't think. Lincoln obviously is still seen as the greatest president because he was. But while there is obviously in America a huge amount of obsession and reverence with the founding fathers and the presidents among certain political groups, i.e. conservative groups, there's a kind of fascinating tension in this film between what we would now look at as really conservative ideas, i.e. like this great white man who wants to educate boys and like make things great for boys and oh my god america and also doesn't have any policies right like, exactly he actually i mean have any political ideology or beliefs yes and yet he's also coming in and saying oh the government is really corrupt which when this movie was made was like the was a big sort of controversial thing for the movie to be about the Hayes code people originally were sort of like oh i don't know if you can do this and they, he makes a big fuss about saying this boys camp thing will be for boys of like all races and creeds, which at the time probably was like, ooh, that's kind of, I mean, of course, everyone in the movie is white, but even just saying that probably mm-hmm. was fairly progressive. Watching it now, you think, why is he so obsessed with boys? Like, where are the <laughs> girls? Right? Like, what, a, you know? So it is this thing where, you see how much politics has changed in the past 70 years, right? I mean, of course there were more leftist people in the 30s than is being depicted in this film, but the way we see it is certainly not the way it would have been received at the time. Um, And yet, of course, we're watching it now, and it's like, what the fuck is this nonsense? (laughs) The boys camp thing And the weird thing is, I saw It's a Wonderful Life for the first time last Christmas, and I fucking loved it. I was crying. All my friends were crying. I was in a large group of crying people. And I was like, this is amazing. And then I watched this. And I was just like, this is saccharine garbage. <laughs> I have never seen It's a Wonderful Life. So, and w- interestingly, I was just saying to you before we recorded, you are the only person I have ever heard who actually likes that movie, which is fascinating because that's a huge classic, obviously, and everyone watches it at Christmas and people love it. They watch it with their families, on and on and on. I'm sure I have encountered other people who said, you know, positive things to me about it. But as far as I can recall, people just say the woman just does everything and the man like sulks and what, like, I hate this film. Very similar things to what we've just been saying about this. I have no opinion about It's a Wonderful Life because I haven't seen it, but I find it really fascinating that you (laughs) cried at that and then at this we're like, ugh. (laughs) I mean, with this, I just kept thinking about the stupidity of the, I mean, it's not like a uniquely American obsession, but it is very, there's like a very specific American political fantasy about an outsider coming in and fixing Washington. And it's like, it's obviously how the whole of the last election went all of the Republican candidates ended up trying really hard to seem like outsiders. You know, like Ted Cruz's career was literally built on the back of the kind of Tea Party thing and then doing a giant filibuster and everyone was like, yeah, he's like this outsider. And it's like, most of these people are not outsiders, but also you need to consider 
the kind of concept of like, maybe you don't send someone who literally has absolutely no idea how to do the job to do a job, right? You know, loads of people talk about this, like, oh, I've decided to like hire this random guy off the street to be my dentist because, you know, he's an outsider. But it's like, there's this long history of people either writing fiction about this concept or actually trying to make it happen. Like Reply All podcast did a really good episode about one of these examples like a couple of months ago where it was this guy who started off as kind of like a huckster radio host where he was advertising his boner pills or something he was like he was like it was sort of goat testicle viagra in like the early 20th century on his private radio station and he ended up building a radio empire and then running for office and he was just really popular because he was like the only person who owned the radio in that state the government ended up making up basically laws to try and get rid of this guy who was just like a nightmare. Um, so they like outlawed it so you couldn't run like your own radio station in this particular area. So he just like moved to Mexico and boosted the signals. So it was like going, <laughs> so it was like going all the way across. It's, it's a really good podcast. You should listen to it. But it was the pinnacle of examples of that thing where it's like, we really just love this outsider. And he was all like, oh, there's so much corruption, which is exactly what's happened now. And it's like, there is corruption but maybe if you investigated that <laughs> and tried to deal with it instead of yelling about it and replacing it with someone else who's really corrupt. And that's kind of this movie because it plays into the idea of this guy who's just so wholesome and everyone loves him, but like he doesn't know how to do his job. He also doesn't have any opinions and he doesn't actually solve the corruption problem. Like the film ends with just like a round of applause because he's done this really good speech. And it's like nothing... Nothing has been solved here, but okay. <laughs> I actually really like the ending of the movie. I think that... I mean, I think it's the only ending it could have, because if it lasted longer, then it... I mean, it, it has to end there, right? Like, that is the that is the peak of the film. Yes. Because you can't have it be like, oh, here's Mr. Smith's legislative career. Like, that's garbage. <laughs> right. But I think the ending of the movie is weirdly one of the only things that's slightly maybe the only thing in the movie that's slightly less triumphally amazing right i mean he wins claude rains we're spoiling this whole film but it doesn't matter claude rains basically says admits that the corruption has has happened yeah but um, it, he only wins because Claude Rains is shamed because he has a personal yes, relationship with yes. smith like it's not it isn't entirely optimistic Obviously. Right, and then he passes out, and the movie ends with everyone, with these, like, pages or something, carrying him out unconscious, and then the movie is just over. And you've had um, Gene Arthur, like, send him a note or something from the gallery saying that she loves him and he's really happy, but you never get a kiss or anything, which actually is not uncommon at all in the films of this period. But... It is this weird moment where it's not like he strides off at the end really, you know, proudly. He's unconscious. He's <laughs> got this, like, he looks like he's dying yeah, by the end of the film. There is some great exhaustion acting from Jimmy Stewart in this movie. Yeah. Like, I feel like <laughs> I am, I'm being quite down on this movie because, I mean, I don't agree with this political message, but I'm also like, because it's just so kind of saccharine. But Jimmy Stewart, very good at his job, that man. <laughs> Well, this is the interesting thing. I think I 
didn't particularly care for this film, but I think I appreciated, I definitely appreciated it more than you did because I think it's quite effective in certain ways. And I also just watched the precursor film to this, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, which was made, I think, in 1936. This was 1939. Also by Frank Capra, also with Gene Arthur, but with Gary Cooper in the sort of Mr. Smith role. And the plot of that film is that this guy from small town, I think Vermont, inherits $20 million from his uncle whom he's never met or something and the uncle dies and there's, you know, whatever. And um, there's not corruption, but what happens there is that the conniving lawyers who are in charge of this money want, want him to give them power of attorney. And they clearly represent the corrupt city people and he's the pure country boy, right? It's all very, um, if any of you have seen sunrise the silent film there's an amazing line in that where the the city lady is trying to seduce this country man and she says give up your farm come with me to the city and it's like a title (laughs) oh my god it's amazing great movie one of the best and it's very much like that there's all this stuff about how like city people lead these terrible lives and like they're just so cynical and like this amazing man has come in and he's so pure and you're like oh my god (laughs) and like Let me tell you, watching that film, I was like, wow, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington is a fucking masterpiece because this is a nightmare. (laughs) Like, it has, there are things about it that work, but it was clearly, there are so many similarities, but it doesn't work nearly as well, and it was clearly a run-up to this. And in, oh my god, just, it was, it's such a mess. Gene Arthur has even less to do in that. She just talks about how amazing this guy is. Like, And so then, when you get to Mr. Smith a few years later, it, A, has, I mean, Mr. Deeds has ideas too, I won't go into it, but I think the ideas in Mr. Smith, even if I don't agree with them, are more interesting. Um, And I think it's much more effective as a movie like there's more going on it's more exciting the filibuster scene lasts for almost a half an hour which is really wild wow um i mean i thought the film i mean the film is two hours long and i was like this feels a bit long but the filibuster scene itself doesn't actually feel over long right because it's that's by far the best part of the movie it's really engaging um it's 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 probably not um, it's probably not a half an hour, but I was looking, I was checking the thing because I was like, wow, there's a lot of this movie left. And I assumed it would end and then they move on to something else. And then I, at a certain point, I was like, oh no, this is going to be the entire rest of this film. But it wasn't, it's not boring. Like He just stands down there and keeps talking and he gets increasingly stubbly and increasingly like haggard and sweaty. <laughs> like um, His hair is all like floppy and I mean... Very and Jimmy Stewart, who usually had his hair all slicked back. He looks much better with the floppy hair, actually, which is unfortunate for him. It's like, oh, you were born in the wrong time. And that's quite interesting structurally, because even if certain films, like His Girl Friday, a lot of that takes place in this one sort of press room. So that a lot of that is contained in one space and people go in and out. To have that much of a movie only be a filibuster is kind of crazy. That's why everyone always mentions this film yeah. when people talk about filibusters because it's not just that they do one, it's that it goes on for like a quarter of the movie. Like, and it's also like crazy. the only it's the only effective way to film a filibuster. But if if this right. film didn't exist and someone made that film now, it would be it would be perceived as being so avant-garde. 
Right. Like, people would be like, that's weird. What an interesting creative choice that you spent half an hour of this movie on a filibuster. Yes. Um, and, like, the way they film it, obviously, isn't particularly avant-garde because it was made in 1939 and, like, that wasn't a thing. But it's still quite bold. And I think the interesting thing about Capra is that I've just watched quite a few of his movies and I had never seen any of them before. And the one I really liked is um, You Can't Take It With You, which is not germane to this, so I won't describe it, but I would definitely recommend it if people are interested. But for the most part, I don't particularly care for them. There's just something about the message that he conveys and a lot of the stuff that doesn't really click with me. He's, I think, quite sexist. I mean, he's very leftist. A lot of, as I said, these movies are all about sort of like the badness of money, which yeah, I, I mean, that's with. basically it's like, a wonderful life. Yeah, but there's just something about him that I I don't like. But I think he's very effective as a filmmaker. There's just something about like he was really good at his job. He knew what he was doing, and I think less with this one, but to a certain extent, that's the case. That I think he manages to just make it work and Jimmy Stewart helps a lot but I also just watched It Happened One Night which also isn't particularly relevant to this because it's not as political although there is the money thing there too but that's a romantic comedy with Claudette Colbert and Clark Gable and it is so sexist in a gross way there is so much like joking about <laughs> domestic violence and he calls oh, her his, his nickname for her is Brat and he is just like he tells her what to do it is so so nasty like there's there's a nastiness to the whole movie and yet Clark Gable whom I don't particularly like but he's very charismatic and the movie is just so well constructed and well executed it has all the romantic comedy tropes like all this stuff that by the end of the film I at least found myself wanting them to get together even though rationally he's a nightmare like at one point she says to him like you could make a girl really happy and I was like no he couldn't he's horrible (laughs) Um, and it was the weird thing where like your brain is saying no, but the movie is so well done that it's sort of making you go along with it. And I think that that's kind of what happens with this film, although again, not to the same degree, which I found quite interesting. I think the filibuster does a lot of that. I wasn't as into it up to that point. And I think that's just done so well. And Jimmy Stewart is doing so much acting that it's kind of like, all right, fine, I'll get on board whatever. And that last part, I think, drives home a lot of the more relevant to today components, which were wild to watch. Fake news, Morgan. Yeah. So like, (laughs) the corrupt bad guys obviously own a bunch of newspapers. And throughout the film, there's this, you know, there's the classic sort of Washington pen of reporters who are all very cynical. They're like, yeah, we make the news and all this stuff. And they're not portrayed positively at all. And they're also not portrayed as having like a job that has any kind of necessary or useful function. And then toward the end of the film, when he's doing this filibuster, the reason why it lasts so long is because he's trying to get media coverage of him uncovering this corruption. But it's not working because the bad guys own all the papers. So his local newsletter, which is staffed by adorable little Boy Scouts tries to get the truth out there, but they're like beaten up by the bad guys. There's this little montage of children having newspapers torn out of their hands by goons, you know. And I was just like, 
I mean, I, you know, it's not like I disagree, right, that there is, like, flawed journalism in the world, because God knows there is, but it's like, isn't it terrible that this news organisation owned by a politician is being so skewed? And it's like, that's what Jimmy Stewart's doing! Jimmy Stewart owns a newspaper and everyone just likes it more because it's folksy. <laughs> that's, that's Alex Jones! I mean, he's right, but, like... <laughs> I think that's a little bit extreme. <laughs> I mean, obviously, yeah. Mr. Smith is not Alex Jones, but I was just like, oh, great. He's got his own media organization. I can't see how this will go wrong in six months. <laughs> that's where the darkness of the movie comes in, I think. And when it becomes interesting, because the press is so fucked, right? That the only recourse is like, oh, we're going to do this and it's going to be great. And then it completely doesn't work. Which shows that it's not, like, a great strategy to begin with. Yeah. It's, right? It's, the film is, like, a weird combination of, sort of, very naive optimism and, like, massive cynicism. Right. Because what happens at the very end is that they bring in these four huge baskets of telegrams from constituents of, you know, State Z, where he's from saying that he should stop this filibuster that he's been doing for like 24 hours or however long at this point. And it is, and again, the filibuster eventually works because he's shamed Claude Rains into feeling bad about himself. But it's a really awful moment that like he's been doing all this stuff to try to communicate with the people of his state, as he says a bajillion times. And he, you have to watch Jimmy Stewart, like, read all these things being like, you know, Get I'm so ashamed, go out. And it really is um, very dark and unsettling in what it's saying about the media, which I found just wild watching Yeah, now. especially seeing as it, like, like overlaps, because, like, it, th- around that period... That was when there was just pulp novels and, like, all the superhero comics as well are like all New York journalists are great don't you love those reporters and like movies like His Girl Friday and loads of stories about sort of plucky journalists and this film is like actually no. (laughs) Well His Girl Friday is really cynical about journalism too. I mean it portrays journalism as like Oh yeah they're they're kind of ambulance chasers aren't they? Oh yeah. yeah. Cary Grant I just rewatched this too. One of my favorite films. We watched Absolute that together. Masterpiece. We did yeah. on Cape Cod. Um, <laughs> and Cary Grant basically will do anything to get this story. He like lie, cheat, steal. I mean, Rosalind Russell goes in to interview this guy who's committed a murder and basically makes up like a fake reason why he did it to get I mean, it is who man. No, not it makes it seem like a sort of great career if you're really amoral <laughs> and like fun person, but it's not like venerating the press. But there was a lot of uh having watched all of these movies, the press and like the newspaper industry was a huge trope in movies of this period, which was interesting and makes a lot of sense because they were ubiquitous. Newspapers well, right, like newspapers have basically died now, but then they were everywhere. I mean, everyone read the newspaper every day. And so it was something that was depicted on screen all the time. And a lot of it wasn't that positive. But 
there are sort of fond characterizations of like newspaper men, as they say in His Girl Friday. But interestingly, in Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, which is again the film that preceded this, a lot of it is about sort of like journalists lying and how terrible it is, but in a more um, granular and sort of personal way as opposed to this big political statement. So this is again kind of more interesting. But you do again realize like, wow, everything and nothing changes over time. The one other thing I would say about that is that I just watched another film. I've been doing nothing watching movies, as you can tell. Um, Summertime! (laughs) Oh yeah, called Talk of the Town. And one of the characters in that is a law professor who gets sort of promised a nomination to the Supreme Court. And then by the end, he actually gets on the Supreme Court. And it is just like the biggest honor, which of course, I mean, it is. But they, they actually say to him at one point, well, of course, there'll be no problem to get the votes of the Senate. You're a sort of centrist, whatever. And then he gets on at the end and it's this big thing. And I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> like, this will never happen again. Like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> and it just, yeah, this really, there's a wealth of stuff out there that you just, whew, you, you don't really realize how much everything has shifted until you see those old things and realize like oh wow or once you... again the west wing which took place 10 <laughs> 10 seconds ago and an alternate reality the west wing actively makes me angry now <laughs> i never watched it and then i've seen every I'm episode like... many of them twice <laughs> yeah my parents i can't remember if my dad watched it my mom teaches a class Two high school students called the presidency so my mother watched the west wing although i don't think she ever finished it i think a lot of people sort of gave up around the cocaine period but i never did and then by the time i might have got around to picking it up it had sort of soured i think in the minds of many left-wing people and i do not like aaron sorkin and i always was sort of like i don't know about this but uh yeah it's wild because obviously this film mr smith goes to washington was a huge ridiculous fantasy and was at the time but it's kind of crazy to think of how much the west wing was too in a supposedly more enlightened era (laughs) And, and it went on for years it's the same exact thing it plays into the people want to believe in the nobility of these systems. Do you and know about the the Supreme Court episode? I think I've heard yeah. this, about it and I think I've forgotten. I feel okay. like I've read the summary. So the concept is they now. have to get a new Supreme Court justice. And they're obviously looking through all the liberal or center-left justices. Yeah. And the person that the aides just really love but they know they can't have is... Um, What's her name? Corella DeVille, the actress. Oh, Glenn Close. Glenn Close, yeah. So Glenn Close plays this very left-wing, extremely charming, clever justice. But when she was young, she had an abortion. And they're like, we don't think we can get you confirmed if you're this liberal and also you had an abortion. Right. But then they come up with this genius idea. They're like, either we can have her really middle-of-the-road justice or we can get Glenn Close and we can can persuade one of the older justices to retire. And then we can trade them for a really conservative justice. So what they do is they're like, this is the perfect solution. We're going to get Glenn Close and we're going to get Glenn Close's conservative equivalent. So it's like 
very conservative justice who's also young and vital and really charming and they can have a really great debate and they get on really well and it's like look we've got this great liberal one in and we've got this great conservative one in and they're gonna have really good debate even though I don't agree with you debate's great and I'm like what if Glenn Close gets breast cancer in like a year and you're stuck in the Supreme Court with this fucking Satan guy like <laughs> and it's just like and it's just this wonderful patriotic moment for like debate and friendship across party lines and now when I think about it I'm just like this is the worst idea I've ever heard <laughs> that is wild I have definitely not heard that episode summary before and it's blowing my mind yeah why would you oh my god it's one that of is- it's one of the really great like standalone because ep- there was like there was like a few standalone episodes that everyone remembers like the big block of cheese day episode and that sort of thing it's like oh my god <laughs> oh that but that yeah that again is something that literally would never happen in one million years and yet to some people that seems like oh man it would be so great if we could all just get along and certainly and even at the time that would never have happened and no. but then now oh my god like it's just laughable to- but, i mean also at the time like that whole show was bush era escapism yeah very much so. It is fascinating to think there was like that happening and 24, <laughs> which I mean, I watched like all of 24 with my dad. We had to watch it together yeah. because the whole fun of it was like laughing when it got ridiculous. You couldn't really take it serious. We did really enjoy it, but you couldn't fully take it seriously. It was a kind of weird thing. I'm sure if I watched it now, I would be like, oh my God, <laughs> like this is appalling. But, uh, but the culture of that period will and I'm sure already is make many PhD dissertations in the future because it was just oh yeah and obviously all these films that I've sort of been referencing are depression era movies yeah and FDR was president when Mr. Smith came out of course and many of these other movies but you know the country was not in a great place broadly speaking better in 1939 than in the early 30s but the economy didn't really snap back until the war, ironically. So I think everyone wanted the inspiration of the politicians really do want to, yeah. you know, do the good thing. But yeah, I mean, if you were interested in this episode, if you like this episode, you should check out our Casablanca episode, which yes. is our other kind of classic black and white propaganda movie analysis, a film that we both absolutely adored um, yes. and went into in a lot of depth. So it's kind of like the companion piece to this one. <laughs> yeah, a very different movie. <laughs> very different. I would recommend watching this, though, if you're interested in this kind of thing. Yeah, Don't expect, yeah, like, a masterpiece of cinema. But I think it's pretty consistently entertaining throughout, actually, even when it's sort of, like, blowing your mind. Yeah, with... and Gene Arthur is oh. wonderful. Yeah, the best scene in the movie is the scene where Jimmy Stewart flirts with her when they're sort of working late at night and actually acts like a human as opposed to a boy scout a, exactly a cartoon exactly boy scout. <laughs> and i was like oh maybe we could have had more of this but unfortunately no but you can't have everything uh yes thank you for listening next week we will be discussing are we doing listener questions yes we are doing listener questions so if you have any urgent questions that you've been dying to ask us please send them yes our way um, you can send them to us on our tumblr account so it's overinvestedpodcast.tumblr.com 
and then there's an ask box there so there should be like an ask button or it's like forward slash ask um we don't have an email but like you can put in your questions like probably pop culture related but you may surprise us if you wish Yes, and you don't need to have a Tumblr account. Yeah, yeah, you can just send it. That. Like, you can sign it anonymously. So we look forward to that. And aside from Tumblr, you can also find us on Twitter at OverinvestedPod and at our website, OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Thanks.